radio for the Agile community. www.agile.fm Welcome to Agile FM. Today I have Jeff Patton with me. Uh, Jeff uh, can be reached at Jeff Patton in one word on Twitter. He is also uh, behind jpattonassociates.com. But to be honest, he doesn't need an introduction. He's the author of User Story Mapping. He won the 2007 Gordon Pask uh, Award. His background is for, or has been for a long, long time, extreme programming. Um, he's a certified Scrum trainer. And I recently uh, met him at the uh, conference in Munich. And uh, we decided to have a little bit of a chat here on Agile FM. But before we get started, welcome to the podcast, Jeff. Thanks, Joe. I'm super happy to be here. Very cool. We have a few things uh, to talk about. And uh, one of the things is uh, products, right? So products is, a, is something you're very passionate about. Um, uh, the, from, a, from a manifesto's perspective, your, your talks, you distinguish quite clearly between projects and products and customers and users and uh, what people do refer to as the business, like in quotes here, uh, written in the manifesto. Why is that, Jeff? Uh, well, I've, I've always been in a product company. Uh, you know, I started with software development in the, in the 1990s and I started by building software for consumers. I started a, at a small product company early on and we built software for sale. and. We, uh, when we said customer, we always meant the person who bought our product. Uh, but uh, what was weird for me is I got my start with extreme programming in 2000. I got recruited into a company that uh, was had had hired Kent Beck, the the guy who wrote the book mm -hmm. Extreme Programming Explained. And my job, my my business card said product manager, but my extreme programming role was customer. And learning that in XP I was a customer it kind of uh, made things uh, weird. Uh, you know, later on in 2001, the Agile Manifesto was written, and every time the customers re referenced in the Agile Manifesto, I kind of wonder who they're talking about. Are they talking about <laughs> uh, the uh, also the business is referenced there? Um, and I came from a product company. We never referred to ourselves as the business or uh, or IT. We were just the people who built the product, and there wasn't an us and them sort of feeling. Mm -hmm. it, uh, there just wasn't. Uh, it wasn't that way. Um, it was that way for me up until about 2005 when I became a consultant and I started working in larger companies, and that language around the business and that idea that we're treating the business as the customer uh, is a, something that I've been kind of fighting against. It's uh, it's odd. It, uh, it doesn't seem quite right. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, who who are customers? Like, uh, if we make this analogy to uh, from the manifesto to what you see as customers, is that are these just people using, or also the word user, right? So how does how does this relate to the world you see things in? Um, uh, so these days, uh, what I teach and consult in is all uh, product ownership, product management stuff in conjunction with Agile, but uh, I'll separate customer from user. Customers are the people who choose to buy a product. Or, uh, we'll talk about users versus choosers. The chooser <laughs> working up a guy named Luke Holman. I've heard him first say that, and that uh, mm -hmm. struck me. Uh, 
with a consumer product, we it's easy to mistake one for the other. For consumer product, I buy my own product, so I'm both chooser and then user. Mm-hmm. So I make choice for the product and then I use it. But uh, I started by building software for large brick-and-mortar retailers, uh, the stuff that they use at point of sale and all the way into the back office. The company I started at years ago got bought by Salesforce, so it's now part of part of Salesforce's big, massive mm-hmm. thing. But uh, but for companies like that, uh, the the chooser is very different from the user. Uh, the user is the person at the cash register or the person in the back office. The chooser are the people at the corporate office that uh, went through a long RFP process and made a decision to buy a product. Mm-hmm. And. Oh, go ahead, John. Yeah, no. So when when you do work with clients, or when you're teaching uh, clients, in in your thinking, um, who you who's your 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 prime suspect here in terms of who you're working for or building things for? Is it, is it the the user, the chooser, or the customer? Uh, when or I'm when I'm teaching, or yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. Uh, so that's one of the first things I'll do is uh, if I teach a public class especially or uh, is ask people in the room to sort of sort themselves to, to figure out who I'm working with. Um, it, it, if I teach a public class, uh, I'll sort people into a, a two by two. I mean, you have to picture this. I know this is not exactly the question you answer, but I want to answer the public class question first, then talk about who I work with usually. Okay. Um, look, if you imagine a two by two, uh, on the bottom left-hand side, uh, you put uh, on the far left-hand side, you put people who write software that's built for use inside their own company, meaning I, I build software that um, the, that's used by people who work for my own company. And on the far right-hand side, you put uh, uh, software that we sell uh, so our company makes its money by selling software sort of in the middle sometimes you have consumer facing websites we don't sell the website we, uh, you know if you work mm-hmm. for a bank uh, banks sell uh, bank accounts uh, they don't sell websites but you might be building something consumer facing so there's a continuum of we build it for inside use for our own people to we build it for outside use to all the way we make our our company makes its money selling this software and then on a top to bottom axis, I'll put whether uh, – well, at the very top, I'll put uh, the situation where users are the choosers. The ones who put hands on keyboards uh, and use the software every day are also the ones who decided to use it. Mm-hmm. And on the very bottom, I'll put where users are not choosers, uh, meaning the people that use the software uh, didn't choose to use it. And if they want to stop using the software, they have to quit their job. Uh, they don't have a choice. Uh and then I'll ask people in the room I'll, uh, to – we'll do that human sorting thing. I'll ask people to sort themselves, and I'll find out top right-hand corner is usually you reserved for consumer-facing products. Uh, bottom right-hand quadrant, a lot of enterprise-class products, uh, You know, people that would work at, at SAP or uh, PeopleSoft or uh, Oracle or uh, things like that would be down there. Uh, bottom left-hand corner is where a lot of traditional IT stuff comes from. This is where a lot of early agile development came from, extreme pro Programming is a process. Uh, you know, early projects were building payroll systems in Chrysler. Um, mm-hmm. Top left-hand quadrant, that's for systems we build internally, but the ones that users don't have to use. Things like uh, internal uh, information systems, uh, internal wikis or portals or uh, things like that. Uh, you know, it's built for internal use, but users don't have to use it. When it uh, what, what you call a product or what a product owner is, is, is really different in all those contexts. Uh, and 
uh, who the customer is and who the user is is really different in all those contexts. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? That makes total sense, yeah. And thanks so, for the visual you put in front of it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Ask people to imagine that if you're if you're driving, mm-hmm. you don't don't stop and draw that. <laughs> Definitely. Uh, but uh, you know, sometimes uh, the companies that hire me come from that top right hand quadrant. Then in those situations, I'm working with people who are product managers and product teams. Uh, sometimes people are in the bottom right hand quadrant. Those are usually bigger companies. Of uh, you know, we you and I just met in in Germany, and I've I've worked with. Uh, 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 it's funny, on the top right-hand quadrant, there's a, a company called Ableton in Berlin that makes software for musicians, and mm-hmm. I've, I've worked with, worked with them directly. Bottom right-hand quadrant, I've worked with SAP directly. Uh, and then bottom left-hand quadrant, I've done a lot of work with, uh, with, with banks and, uh, and things like that. Uh, uh, that's where a lot of those people come from. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's the the right hand side that I usually see some kind of understanding of products and and what our products are and when we make our money on products. But it's as you drift more to the left hand side, that's where you get this weird thing where you get a, a, this. You know what I'll talk about is a, a client vendor or a customer vendor anti pattern, where IT starts treating the business like the customer, uh, and. Uh, in that situation, uh, if you if IT behaves like a service and it treats itself like a customer, then its its job becomes making the business happy by building software, mm-hmm. which is not the same thing. You know, if you if you think of a product that you love, one that you would tell other people about it, um, you wouldn't. Tell people I love this software because it was delivered on time or because it has um, more features. You love what the product does for you. And product success isn't about on-time delivery. Mm -hmm. Uh, It isn't about more. Uh, It's about more of the right things. Uh, But if you are a service company, like if you're IT, well, there's no end to the the stuff that the business wants. So if you're a service company, uh, success starts to be more. Uh, th- th- does that make sense? Oh, absolutely. I would. I would almost say, like, um, at least in my experience, uh, it, it's hardly ever really important if the pro- if the project was on time. I mean, it's somewhere in that neighborhood of of the time frame. It's much more important if the right product has been released. Yeah, and you know, you you tell if something is right because customers see it, adopt it, and use it, and keep using it. And if they if it was a soft if it's software they have to use, then they their jobs become easier or more efficient. And um, you measure success based upon that whether mm-hmm. people use and become more efficient using the software, not on on time delivery. Mm-hmm. But but when uh, in so many organizations, so many teams, the, the, their sole focus starts to be on time delivery of, of, of more stuff mm-hmm. or getting more stuff done on time. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm here with Jeff Patton talking about user story mapping in a, a little bit. We just touched on product, customer, users, and the business and uh, had a wonderful example for it. And uh, we're going to return back to this podcast in, podcast in just one minute. Agile is all about inspection and adaptation, and so is Agile FM. If you like the show, please visit the show page of Agile FM on iTunes and leave a comment rating for us. You can now also visit Agile FM, the website, and leave a comment about a specific individual episode online. Well, we're here with uh, Jeff Patton, and uh, we'll talk about um, 
user story mapping. I have a few questions about this uh, as well, Jeff, because I feel like this podcast we can use almost like a kind of a mythbuster kind of uh, um, episode. And it, it's really about user stories as well. We're getting a lot of questions around user stories. And yeah, I would love to have you just touch on a few topics here, if that's okay with you, um, around user stories. You wrote the book, User Story Mapping. Um, I have recently, like the, the, for the past years, people were talking about, uh, well, it all started with user stories, right? And at some point years ago, people started talking about epics. Uh, now, I, um, maybe in the last 12 months or so, um, I heard people talk about sagas more. <laughs> and, um, and what Ooh, I'm also... Tell me, what's the definition of a saga? Right, exactly, right? So, so what I'm... What I'm um, Maybe it's already enough to just sort of talk about user stories and epics, but the the big question is many organizations now are actually trying to get epics and then trying to break down, and then sometimes you hear like weird things such as they're writing a user story and where's the uh, where's the epic to that, right? And I feel like we're going into a breakdown kind of mode. Um, yeah. Where do you see all these things and puzzle pieces move together here? Um. First, I've got well, I've got a lot of opinions about that. Yeah. I spend a lot of time reminding people that stories, stories aren't another word for requirements or specifications or things like that. That I remind people, stories get their name from not how we write them, but how we use them. The, the original intent behind stories was you could write down anything uh, that you wanted a team to do, and uh, it became a story because we you would tell the story, you, you would talk about, you would you would explain it. Uh, stories were sort of a cure to a lot of traditional forms of requirements, mm -hmm. where traditional forms of requirement are requirements are prone to misunderstanding or uh, prone to argument about what the right way to write it is. And the idea was, it doesn't matter what you write or how you write it, if you bring whatever you wrote down and we sit down and talk about it, then the goal is uh, that face-to-face -face conversation uh, brings us shared understanding. Mm -hmm. we, uh, so however you wrote it, we, we get uh, shared understanding and somebody who wants something needs to talk to somebody who can build something and together they get their heads on the same page. Mm -hmm. um, now, uh, so that's where stories get their name. But the, uh, there's then there's this idea that we, well, we eventually agree on what we're going to build and we have to build something. But one of the characteristics of agile development is we want to build small things. We want to build the least we possibly can and see something working soon. So there's this tension to, yes, we need to talk together, but uh, we need to focus on building small things. You know, another hidden thing in the stories is to move that focus to, well, we want to, move our discussion to discussing value. Uh, we talk a lot about uh, who, what, and why, who would, uh, who would use this uh, and why they would use it. And if we keep the focus on value, that moves the conversation to say, okay, what's the smallest thing we could build that would give us value? So there's this idea of small. But the problem is anything we want to build is big. Uh, you can't build something in a couple days. Any product you use on any app on your mobile device, any piece of software uh, that you use isn't something that took a developer or a team a few days to build. Yeah. It's something that took hundreds, thousands of hours uh, to build. Uh, so we run into this decomposition problem. Mm -hmm. So 
the original idea of stories was uh, it changed the way you work so that you talk to each other, focus on value, uh, uh, try to agree on small things to build. But stories left the whole idea of the, you know one of the problems you're meant to solve with stories is how do you break big things down into small things, and. It doesn't matter. Uh, the, the, so yeah, but someone coined the the term epic to refer to just because an epic sounds like it's a bigger story. Um, but okay, that's a big thing. And I guess uh, I've heard the term saga used to indicate that it's multiple stories that sort of chain together, mm. uh, uh, that go together. Um, yeah, Joe, I might have lost the plot, but uh, the. the of all of these, there's a lot of different ways to talk about uh, stories, but it, ultimately it doesn't matter. It's mm. just big things that break down into small things. Mm. And and you use storytelling and stories to break them down any way you want. But the minute you start trying to put a taxonomy on these things is the minute it just gets messy and we start to regress. Yeah. Yeah, it, it regress into this old uh, requirements gathering kinds of junk that uh, we struggle with even before Agile yeah. So right, and that's that's what I'm nervous about. That this uh, this whole user story movement is is going to right. That we we see so much uh, process around how to create user stories. Whereas in the past it was like just write it down on a card, have a yeah, conversation, yeah. and get your confirmation. And now we're what we're seeing is this. Uh, you know, it's almost like a process flow in large organizations about how to get from a whatever a saga to yes. an epic to a user story, and it just seems very counterproductive to where we wanted to be. So yeah, every organization is working hard to. Well, organizations want to track requirements from big ideas down to small ideas. They want to have some way to. It's this focus on. You know, we started by talking about this. This focus on scope. This focus on how much uh, we're delivering, and not how successful it is. It, um, so yeah, people want some way to take a big thing and know how it's broken down into small things and know if we're really, really done with the, the whole big thing. Yeah. Well, talking about all that scoping here and the, the various things we just talked about, um, how, does, how does the concept of an MVP, uh, in your opinion, fit into all this? And what is an MVP in the first place? Another myth I think we have to bust. Yeah, uh, yeah. Oh, so this is the beginning of a, a big conversation. Uh, <laughs> uh, 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 the, so I, I've got a couple talks, and I teach about this a lot. Uh, the The original concept of MVP, you know, it's short for minimum viable product. Mm -hmm. You know, the term was coined in two thousand one, and it came out of a lot of work done by you know, people throughout the nineteen nineties. The idea was we want a product that is super successful on the market, and uh, the original term viable meant it was successful. It was a product we could sell and would earn return on investment. It would support our business. So viable meant that, and. Uh, all software we build is sort of a risk. It's a bit of a gamble. We don't know what the market is going to buy. We don't know how much they need. And uh, what we want – so well, one of the things people do when they don't know is they hedge by putting everything that people ask for uh, into a release. Mm -hmm. But if we put everything in there, that takes a lot longer. That reduces the return on investment. And sometimes if you put too much in it, it can uh, actually kind of uh, mess up the value proposition of the product. But the, on the opposite side, if we to, put too little in there, it's not enough for people to use, and that's not viable. That's not successful either. Mm -hmm. So the goal was to uh, identify, and it took, and it was super hard to identify a minimum viable product, the smallest product we could release that would be successful. 
That's what the term originally meant. Um, and the, what happened uh, is that all well, the term was hard. Uh, the, the, the people, a guy named Frank Robinson originally coined the phrase, and he described the process of of, of research and, and uh, testing and experimentation that we used to try and figure out what the smallest product we could deliver and th that would be successful was. Now, in 2011, uh, Eric Ries wrote a book called The Lean Startup. Mm -hmm. uh, and in that book, he said that, you know, the problem with that MVP concept was uh, all what we're doing is guessing. And and a lot of people had interpreted that MVP as, as a decision our company needed to make. Yes, it's true. It's a decision. But you make that decision based upon a lot of testing and research, ideally. Uh, but, well, Eric said uh, what we need – well, he redefined MVP to the smallest thing we could do or make to test a product hypothesis, to, to test what we believe is true. Hmm. So in the in the Reese definition, this is where you get things like uh, uh, landing page tests and using prototypes as an MVP and uh, A-B tests and uh, hmm. small releases to a small subset of customers. So, so you know, the original definition was small successful release that earns us ROI. Uh, the Eric Reese definition or the lean startup definition is anything we could do to test our idea up until the point of uh, – of uh, a successful product release. Uh, how can I say it? Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, no. The mm -hmm. definitions are polar opposites of each other. Mm -hmm. One meant successful release, one meant test. Yeah. Uh, and which, now which, we which have Which one this. resonates better with you, personally? <laughs> um, both concepts. So when I teach uh, to product people, they need to understand both products, both concepts both are incredibly important uh, they need uh, your company doesn't make any money unless you actually get a product that is viable and secondarily the way you figure that out is by testing a lot of ideas uh, by building uh, by building small things by building experiments by putting them out in front of customers so both concepts are important and the problem is right now the term has been so polluted that you just can't use it um, uh, my, my those two concepts uh, are important in teaching. I try and tell this story about what MVP was and how it kind of went sideways, how it can mean about anything these days. And so the, the two terms I'll use in the context of teaching is our uh, smallest, uh, smallest successful release and next best test. Mm -hmm. uh, so uh, where, so I'll ask people is, you know, how confident are you this release is going to be successful? And if you're not confident, then what's the next best thing we could do to test uh, that or be more sure? Mm -hmm. So next best test, that's a, that's a, that's an Eric Reese MVP, right. smallest successful release. That's an original uh, Robinson definition. Awesome. All right. Very cool. Uh, Jeff, the next one, if you're going in the, the myth list here, right, is one is probably super straightforward, a question you probably have heard many, many times, but just want to bring this here also to the to the listeners here. Definition of a feature versus user story or a vertical slice and the separation. Do you have like a good example for how to distinguish these things? Or uh, feature versus a, a user story versus you said a vertical slice. Yeah, mm -hmm. slicing yeah. is a very popular term, and and people keep slicing and slicing user stories. Uh, um, at least that's 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 one of the experiences I hear quite a bit. Oh, I don't know how to uh, uh, 
do that. Uh, maybe, you, maybe we do the feature versus the user story. Oh, see, all of those are kind of messed up. Uh, so <laughs> so I, I, we talked when I talk about a story. A story I, I pound on. I help people, and this may twist your head if you've been thinking about a story as a thing you're supposed to build. Um, I, a story is things become you can take anything that you were working with before and call it a story by changing the way you work by making sure that you collaborate and focus on shared understanding and also keep the focus on value so when i talk about a story i see a story as a container i can put anything in a container i can talk about a feature i can talk about a use case i can talk about anything and i can uh so a story is sort of an empty box uh, but when i as soon as i put something in a story it kind of prescribes a way of working of collaborating so stories don't need to be small or large or anything. A story can be about something that will take a year to build. A story uh, can be about something that will take a couple days to build. Now, the the size of thing that I want to build in a next uh, iteration or a next development cycle is something that takes a couple days. So we have to start with something that's big uh, and um, and eventually well break it down to something that is small. But we use a story-driven process to do that. Uh, everybody's seen a representation of a backlog that starts with big things and breaks down to small things. Mm -hmm. All of those big things and small things are stories. doesn't matter if you call that the big thing an epic and the small thing a story, but it's kind of a continuum. If you put at one end the word epic and one end the word story that'll take a couple days to build that's ready for development, I don't know what you call all the variants of gray in between. Mm -hmm. Um, now, uh, so a story is a way to work and everything can be a story regardless of how big it is. Now, when you build, there's this hope that you're building something that is a vertical slice. And what most people think of as a vertical slice is something that is functionality that cuts from user interface uh, down to whatever you use for a persistence layer these days. It's not mm -hmm. a database almost uh, anymore, but it's uh, – uh, it, it's something that – it's functionality we can see and use. Mm -hmm. uh, so uh, that's the aspiration. But uh, look, I've, I was working with – I had somebody in a class recently that was building software uh, for – they provided a, a, a framework for people who did IoT, Internet of Things kind of development. So you know, for them, their software didn't have a user interface. It was an API that was called. Mm -hmm. and. Uh, they build a lot of a lot of things that don't have UI. So what's a vertical slice when you're building something that's cloud based or something that's IoT based? Mm -hmm. uh, that gets a, that's a, gets a little wacky too when we don't know what the layers are anymore. But mm -hmm. vertical normally means uh, it's functional. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Right. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. So I think we're maybe we're redefining some of those things for some of the listeners, and it's always good to get some new fresh ideas on these things, right? So you might pick up something uh, here from Jeff that is. Uh, you know, something you can try, change, and maybe choose some different kind of wording in, um, in organizations. Now, the book you wrote is this, the user story mapping. Yeah. Uh, I wanted to um, touch on one thing here. It's like I feel like a lot of organizations, they write user stories. They have, as you just said, like a backlog. They move things in there. But the actual activity of uh, putting things on the floor or on a wall and, and, and mapping things is very often and only in workshops or um, sometimes not even done at all, actually quite frequently. Why do you think that is and uh, what are the companies missing out on by, by not doing that? So the, the, for, for people that don't know, a story map uh, is a super simple model. Uh, it 
describes a product or a feature or a thing uh, from ideally from a user's perspective uh, and left to right it's it tells a story it's it's a flow uh, and top to bottom it, it decomposes it. it it's a it's a simple way to sort of explain how a system works um, uh, people who are familiar with use case writing uh, uh, sort of can adapt to mapping really well because uh, it's if, if you take a, a big use case for your system uh, and figure out where the beginning is and where the end is, all the steps in between become the what are what I call the backbone, the top of the map. Mm-hmm. We've also been talking about breaking big things down into little things. One of the things I show people in a class is if you've got a, a feature or a big thing that needs to be broken down, if you just identify who it's for and tell me what people are going to use it. Uh, if, you, if you were to tell a story uh, about that, somebody using that feature, where's the beginning and where's the end, if you tell that story, it's easy to take that big feature and break it down by using a map. And then the pieces that are in that map become, well, smaller things that we could build. Uh, also, by breaking it down, we start to consider what's optional or uh, what's necessary and uh, how else would other people do it. So this big visualization allows people to start with a big idea and spray it out and uh, uh, break it down in lots of small things. Mm. And you know, your original question is, what do people lose by not doing that? If, if the purpose of stories was... Uh, Shared understanding or getting on the same page. Well, there's a there's a bunch of different models we could uh, ways we could use to try and help people understand the big picture, but a map is something that's super simple to build. And when people work together to build it, they they get they build shared understanding. They start with a big story, they spread out on a wall, and they get on the same page and uh, understand understand that thing from a user's perspective. They they clear up misunderstandings where I thought it was one way and you thought it was another way. And ultimately they have to, it's, it's funny, all of our uh, threads are coming together here. One of the things that a story map is super good for is once I've got it all sprayed out on the wall with lots of options, then I can then ask what is the smallest release that would be successful that's for this right. product. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's where that slicing thing comes in. Uh, so uh, it allows us to do this collaboratively instead of, uh, you know, the arguments go a lot faster when we, we're all on the same page. Mm-hmm. Uh, we all, uh, so to find that next, that smallest successful release, that conversation goes a lot more smoothly when we all have the same understanding of what this thing is and what all of our options are. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we just talked a little bit about uh, the the map and, and obviously how these things are being broken down. And your book, there's a lot of uh, material. There's um, stickies, index cards. It's very visual, uh, like references are in your book. Uh, you talks, as as uh, you know, many many know, is also very hands on 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 paper and pen. Um, how does how do you do this in organizations? Like, is there any kind of tools you use uh, electronically? Do you think that would fit for yeah. companies, or would you always prefer paper and uh, and pen? Um, well, so this is where I uh, uh, remind people if we go to the go back to agile principles. That uh, where is it? Uh, I was looking for the agile. I brought it up on my computer while we were talking. Mm. Uh, the most efficient and effective method to convey information and within a development team, within a development team, is face-to-face conversation. That's right. So, uh, full stop. Uh, the the if you want to 
have as efficient a conversation as as possible. Eh, doing it face to face is a lot is a lot better. Mm-hmm. Uh, anything else is something less. So uh, we, you know, in organizations where they say, okay, well, well, we're not co-located or we don't have wall space or things like that. How do how do we do this? It's sort of like asking, you know, how do I run marathons with ankle weights? Well, <laughs> you can train and you can get good at it, but I promise you're not going to beat people who don't do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, so that said, uh, bear in mind that any other solutions uh, don't work well. Uh, so, yeah. so the if uh, there's a lot of tools these days that people use. Uh, um, there's a tool called Mural. It's at mural.co. There's a tool called uh, Cardboard, or it's at cardboardit.com. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but tool people are using. Uh, I'm, I'm terrible at this. I. Uh, I have people that uh, uh, there are plugins for uh, Jira, uh, something called Easy Agile that uh, mm-hmm. plugs in for uh, that plugs into Jira that uh, lets you do these kinds of things. There are more and more tools that allow people to uh, from remote locations to collaborate together, and they're not tools that share a screen. They're tools that allow people to see the same screen and everybody at every location to change what's on the screen. Right. Um, uh, so. Any tool that allows you to do that allows you people to collaborate together on these things. Mm-hmm. Well, but, one of the things I, I've noticed is that you know when when we're talking especially about your work, um, that's the you're seeing the big picture of things, right? Yeah. And it, it just doesn't fit on a screen, and then the scrolling no. begins, and you just don't have the information in front of you. So where it's, it's it's kind of a a difficult way. I think I think you had a good metaphor here, right? It's a difficult way of seeing the big picture by only looking at a like a zoomed piece of it, and uh, yeah. Um, and none of the tools I have been working with in this particular um, area has been really uh, useful. Um, and nothing has really been better, as you said, as uh, index cards or stickies uh, to that extent. So that is um, yeah. that's cool. How do you feel about the no estimate movement? Yeah. Uh, actually, I want to say one more thing about oh, yeah. that last concept before we switch over to the no estimate thing. Yeah. But uh, look, it's always been this way in software. I think I, I can remember even before Agile uh, having uh, big things on walls. I can remember big uh, things that we printed out on plotters that would show the the, the architecture of our system. And oh, we, yeah look at it and marvel at all those little pieces and it wasn't even it, it was it would fill a whole wall or it would be a big poster printed on a plotter that would show the architecture of our system and you had to step up and look read really close to see all the words you know we've always had this problem mm-hmm. uh, it sucks to uh, system it would be cool if systems fit onto a4 pages uh, but it's just not the way it works yes. um, the, it's always been that it's always been that way and then when we add that layer of collaboration on to it where we want people to collaborate together on big things eh, yeah. it just is no matter how big you project things onto a wall um, it, computers are constrained by the resolution of the screen you're looking at mm. they're yeah. just not they're not as high re- resolution as, uh, as the real world now uh, look on the the no estimates thing oh boy that's been coming up an awful lot um, I think what uh, what do I think about it um, I've met a lot of people behind that uh, uh, movement. Um, oh shoot, who are the names uh, uh, behind that? The, when you think yeah. of no estimates, uh, um, mm. I can't think uh, of a name. Okay. 
but it, I, <laughs> that's I, just going to be horribly <laughs> embarrassing. We're going to have to because I've met uh, several people and I'm uh, drawing a blank this morning. Not enough coffee uh, today, uh, but uh, uh, the the idea is hitting us with this uh, reality that. Uh, the estimate first off the word estimate is an oxymoron uh, uh, first off accurate estimate is an oxymoron mm. and everybody in software development that knows that knows that when you say estimate what you mean is commitment um, and uh, what for the all the no estimates people I've talked to uh, what they talk about doing uh, is still breaking things down, still measuring how long things take, or uh, we talk about, I go, some of the most effective agile teams I've worked with have stopped estimating and have moved to card counting. They've got good at breaking down stories to things, uh, uh, breaking down big stories to small stories that can be done in a couple days. And then they, every couple weeks, they count how many of those they finished uh, and it allows them to um, figure out how fast that they're moving. Mm. Um, the one thing that uh, concerns me is that if people take the idea of no estimates to be to be equal to no commitment, um, that starts to be a problem. That's something that doesn't work in in the product world. Um, you know, if you uh, I started by building software for brick and mortar retailers, and uh, there are real world constraints uh, when we shipped out software. Uh, we, and we had to roll it out to a chain of retailers. You know, we had to finish rollouts uh, before um, before October because they're not going to move Christmas. Uh, the, the outside yeah. world uh, doesn't change. Right. And while we couldn't precisely say exactly what we were going to ship, we could sort of say uh, what was going to be there, what big things were going to be there, and uh, what weren't. And Anybody that works, anybody listening to this knows that if you work for a company, you can't just say, I don't know what I'm going to give you and I don't know when. Mm. Uh, uh, th that doesn't fly, not in the real world. You, you ultimately need to say, what are, the, what are we going to get and when? Mm. The, the cool thing, and again, everything's tying back together here. If you break big things down into small things, you measure how long it takes you to build small things, uh, you can start to get pretty predictable. Mm. Uh, but it's not the same um, I think people have uh, tried too much to uh, get accurate estimates. Yeah, uh, it's still a prediction, right? So you, you're still making some form of forecasting or some form yes. of estimates, even though they're, I mean, not accurate. And I think that's pretty much what that movement is also yeah. about, is saying exactly. that the estimates are not accurate. Yeah. Um, well, we're coming to the end here, Jeff, but I do yeah. want to ask you, um, you know, just a little bit for the listeners, you're very vision, visionary. Um, what's, what's on your agenda these days? What are you working on? Um, what trends are you seeing in the industry um, as something important to observe? <laughs> uh, give the listeners something you feel like that is um, either in your personal environment where you're working on. I don't know if you're working on another book or if there's anything you're focusing on papers or talks. And uh, what is it? Maybe around user stories or mapping or products, anything. Yeah, well, the, the a lot of the themes that we've been talking about here, a lot of the things that are on my mind lately. Mm -hmm. uh, the the two things. Well, I guess the 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 thing I uh, am wondering about more lately, or the thing I focus on lately, 
is what are we going to be left with when or what what's next after we combine everything we learn from doing agile well and we start to roll in all the things we learn from doing products well all the things we learn from doing experimentation all the things that come from lean startup and lean ux more and more i work with organizations that are adopting a more product centric posture and it means that you know one of the things that hits you over the head when you're working with scrum is this idea of potentially shippable software but when you embrace that concept of an mvp as a next best test well we don't want to ship our tests uh, or or we only if we do ship them they're in the form of an a b test or something to a small subset of audience they definitely don't, don't need to scale so what does a process look like when it combines a whole team and that whole team is not just accountable for our on time delivery but accountable for product success and they use a blend of shippable software shipping at scale and shipping uh, or working with tests when they all work on that. Uh, what I'm, what we're trying to arrive at is what's after common agile practice, practice or what is, uh, if I if I get my butt going on a next book, it's going to be about it will be that. Um, it's funny the handouts I use for workshops now are well over 120 pages, so they're almost a book, just not well written. But it's turning that work into a, a book. That's that's what's on my mind lately mm. is. What does agile practice look like uh, when it leverages everything we've learned so far and gets rid of some of the uh, well, the, the anti patterns mm-hmm. of uh, focusing on delivering more stuff faster and moves towards focusing on success? Awesome, Jeff. Thank you so much. I do want to uh, thank you. F- much appreciated your time um, to to spend here with me and give the listeners some some insights of. You know, into your thinking around user story mapping, products, customers, and all of those nice things we just talked about. Thank you so much. Thank you, Joe. Good to talk to you. Thank you for listening to Agile FM, the radio for the Agile community. I'm your host, Joe Krebs. If you're interested in more programming and additional podcasts, please go to www.agile.fm. Talk to you soon.